This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, there is frustration and fear as we head into the holiday season amid what top U.S. health officials are calling an incoming tidal wave of COVID cases. It has been more than two full years since the mysterious and deadly virus started circulating in parts of China. Now here in the U.S., COVID-19 cases are setting new records, seemingly out of control. The Delta variant still accounts for most new infections, but the ultra-contagious Omicron is now in at least 43 states. Omicron is here. It's going to start to spread much more rapidly at the beginning of the year. The scenes are familiar. Long lines for testing, overwhelmed hospitals and medical personnel, and revised plans from business and some schools to go back to virtual. Still, officials are adamant. It may feel like deja vu, but it's not. We have tools to protect people, so use them. If you're vaccinated, you have your booster shot, you're protected from severe illness and death, period. We'll talk with the director of the National Institutes of Health, Dr. Francis Collins, for the latest on our COVID winter wave. And as always, we'll check in with former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Plus, the other surge in the U.S., 100,000 Americans are dead from opioids this year. We'll ask the new administrator of the Drug Enforcement Administration, Ann Milgram, about what her agency is doing to stem the tide. Finally, we'll have a dramatic look at the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan from former President Ghani's top aide, Hamdallah Mohib, who fled that country alongside Ghani as Kabul fell. There's reports that you had to fly at low altitude because you were trying to avoid the Americans knowing Absolutely. that you were fleeing. Trust Why? was gone. There was no trust. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. With less than a week to go until Christmas, it's tough to be effusive with holiday cheer as a COVID tidal wave builds and is likely to worsen due to holiday gatherings. Officials around the world are struggling to learn more about the Omicron variant. What they do know is that your best protection is to get vaccinated and boosted. Mark Strassman begins our coverage. Omicron's alarm bells ring out across America, in California. When I look around the corner ahead, what I see is a deluge of Omicron. Ohio. People are gathering together. Our medical personnel have just been slammed. All of this constitutes this perfect storm. And especially New York. I believe it's going to get even stronger and more virulent, and we are in for a, a rough ride this winter season. New Yorkers stampede for testing, 
COVID cases nearly doubled in one week. Twice this week, the state set the highest single-day count of new cases since the pandemic's early months. I feel like everyone has COVID, <laughs> and I'm just trying to be safe, you know. This week has been crazy. Two years into the virus, America's seeing a run on testing once again. We're left to make our own COVID calculus, evaluating personal risk and exposure moment to moment. America's bruising from a one-two punch, Delta and Omicron, the newest variant about to become dominant. Its severity unclear, its contagiousness overt. Cases more than double every few days. Experts warn about a potential tsunami of sickness. For unvaccinated, we are looking at a winter of severe illness and death for unvaccinated. For themselves, their families, and the hospitals, they'll soon overwhelm. Another milestone in mourning. Bells tolled Thursday for 800,000 Americans dead from the virus. That's almost the population of San Francisco. Roughly 1,200 Americans still die daily from the virus. Today was pretty hard because it's my third one this week. One of many American hospitals buckling under caseloads. The NFL is reeling from a blindside blitz of outbreaks. Three of this weekend's games postponed for a couple of days. The NBA, the NHL, and the NCAA are also playing defense to keep COVID from spreading. Multiply that risk of community spread on college campuses. On many, COVID has exploded again, just in time for the holidays, as infected students head home for winter break. With Christmas next weekend, more than 100 million of us will travel at least 50 miles over the next few days. So many people are sick from COVID. Everyone is sick of COVID. And home for the holidays has an irresistible appeal, but an undeniable risk. Margaret? Our Mark Strassman in Atlanta. U.S. health officials are closely watching Omicron cases in the United Kingdom for signs as to what could be headed here. CBS News foreign correspondent Imtiaz Tayyip reports from London. Margaret, good morning. Well, London really now is the epicenter of Omicron infections right across the UK, with over half from the new variants, all of which is wreaking havoc nearly everywhere. Britain is convulsing under the strain caused by Omicron. In central London, violence broke out between police and anti-vaxxers outside Parliament, where demonstrators were demanding an end to vaccine mandates and other COVID measures. The unrest comes as chilling new government figures show England has recorded the highest number of children admitted to hospital with COVID since the start of the pandemic. 65 under 18s were hospitalized with COVID on December the 12th, with more than half just five years old and under. They're a lot younger than the patients that we used to, um, we had in the first and second surge. As record numbers of new infections threaten to strain the UK's already struggling national health system, Britain's booster shot program has been turbocharged. Every minute, 100 people are being boosted in London alone. So the waiting time is two and a half to three hours. Despite the long lines in places, few here were complaining. Is that why you're getting your booster? Yeah, definitely. Peace of mind, really, if anything else. Across Europe, Omicron concerns have led to a wave of new COVID restrictions including in the Netherlands, where holiday shoppers were given just a few hours' notice the country was going into a full national lockdown until at least mid-January. 
Caretaker Prime Minister Mark Rutte said the country will have, quote, another Christmas that is completely different from what we would like, calling it very bad news. But there is a glimmer of hope. The first at-home treatment for COVID has been given to patients in the UK as part of a major Oxford University study. Molnupiravir will be tested on 10,000 people at risk of serious illness, a move and a medication being described as a game-changer. Now, officially, Britain is still open for business, but it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas plans are once again in disarray as people right up and down the country are cancelling plans because of Omicron. Margaret. Imtiaz, thank you. We go now to the director of the National Institutes of Health, Dr. Francis Collins. Good morning. And before we begin, doctor, I want to note that this is your last day as director. Uh, you're not retiring, but you are stepping aside from NIH. So thank you for your service to the country. Thanks, Margaret. It's great to be with you this morning. As you step aside, uh, it seems like the virus, though, is not going along with you. Uh, in fact, this Omicron variant seems to be raging around the world. Um, did you see this mutation coming and is our health system prepared for what is about to hit? Yeah, this is a big challenge. It's a brand new version, and it is so different uh, that it has the properties to potentially be uh, evasive of the vaccines and the uh, other measures that we've taken. I'm glad to say it's not totally successful at that. A big message for today is if you've had vaccines and a booster, you're very well protected against Omicron causing you severe disease. So anybody listening to this who's in that 60% of Americans who are eligible for a booster but haven't yet gotten one, this is the week to do it. Uh, do not wait. What do we know about Omicron? We know that it's very contagious. Uh, mm -hmm. You saw what happened in South Africa initially, then in Europe, and now in the U.S. It's doubling about every two to four days, and we're going to see the number of cases go up pretty steeply over the course of the next couple of weeks. And that's obviously something that's going to require all of us to double down on the things that we know we should be doing in terms of being safe, wearing masks, avoiding indoor gatherings yeah. with other people who aren't vaccinated. You predicted a few days ago we could see a million cases a day of Omicron infection. Is the health system prepared? The big question is, are those million cases going to be sick enough uh, to need um, health care and especially hospitalization? This is a big remaining question, Margaret. Is this virus actually not quite as capable of causing severe disease? There's some encouraging signs in South Africa that there's not as much in the way of hospitalization, even though the virus just ran crazy uh, through the area around Johannesburg. But that's their population. Ours may be different. Um, I don't know what the this virus will do to somebody who's unvaccinated and maybe has a medical condition or is over 65, just mm -hmm. sort of holding our breath to see how severe the cases will be. There's certainly some chance, though, that our hospitals are going to be pretty stressed. They already are with Delta, of course. Uh, government is prepared now to start sending out surge teams as needed to places that are really hit hard. And the president's going to have more to say about that in a speech on Tuesday. Among the unvaccinated are those who are not eligible yet, the very young. In South Africa, we did see a high number of infections in children and hospitalizations. Do you have any insight into why? That's another really good question. I was on the phone for an hour and a half yesterday with the South African public health people looking at some of that data. 
You know, it's not absolutely clear what's going on there. It's also possible that because people are really worried about kids, they're more likely to get put in the hospital in South Africa just as a precaution. I'm not absolutely convinced that the evidence says that Omicron is more dangerous than Delta was, but we got to watch that closely. Obviously, we don't want to see that happen in our country as well. And certainly kids who haven't yet been vaccinated, and of course that's any under five, really we ought to think about surrounding them with vaccinated people to keep them from getting infected. Would you advise people against traveling this winter? I mean, what you're talking about, it almost seems inevitable that people will get ill. Well, certainly this virus is going to be all around us. Um, I'm not going to say you shouldn't travel, but you should do so very carefully. And I think airplanes uh, now with required masking, probably being on an airplane is a fairly safe place to be. But think about how you're going to get there and how you can make sure you're safe along the way. And that certainly means if you're not vaccinated, I would say travel is really not a great idea because you are in a very vulnerable place now with Omicron. If you are vaccinated and boosted, wear your mask when you're in any kind of public place. You don't know who around you might actually be infected without being even aware of their symptoms because mm -hmm. Omicron can do that too. Just do so with great careful and particularly avoid those large indoor gatherings with a lot of people where sometimes caution gets thrown to the winds. You know, people are listening to this, Margaret, and they're all going, I am so sick of hearing yeah. this. And I am too, but the virus is not sick of us, and it is still out there looking for us. And we've got to double down on these things if we're going to get through the next few months. But as people learn to live or manage around this, they are increasingly reliant on the testing that the administration has emphasized we all need to rely on as sort of a regular staple in our lives. Dr. Fauci said this week we're getting information that not all of the diagnostic tests will be accurate with Omicron. So for f families who want to gather and test ahead of time, which tests work? Well, FDA is working on that intensively right now. And I will say with some pride, NIH is deeply engaged in helping out with that. And I think in the next few days, we'll have more definitive answers about that. Right now, I'm pretty reassured by the early evidence that the commonly used tests that you can get in the pharmacy that allow you to do testing at home are probably going to be okay. So hold tight on that. There are a few of these uh, so-called PCR tests, actually ones that are not in very heavy use, that may not work for Omicron, and those are posted on the FDA website. We keep hearing it'll be different this time because we do have tools that work. One of the things we did hear, yes. though, um, is that there's really only one of the available monoclonal antibodies that seems to be effective for those who are sick with COVID. What does that mean in terms of taking tools out of the tool chest? Do we have enough supply of the only one that works? If someone gets sick, do they need to ask for it by name? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it is the GSK VIR monoclonal antibody that still sticks uh, to the spike protein that Omicron has. Remember, remember this, uh, I'm holding up my virus here. Those spikes are what the antibody has to stick to. And the Omicron version of the spike is just different enough that some of the other monoclonals don't stick. This one does. There is a big push to increase the production of those. And obviously, we're going to have to be careful to save that particular monoclonal for the people at really high risk, because uh, they're the ones who are going to benefit most from it. Supply and preparedness. We will watch that. Thank you very much, doctor, and good luck to you in your, uh, not retirement, but your new line of work. Well, thank you very much and a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Face the Nation will be back in one minute. Stay with us.
The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We go now to former FDA Commissioner Advisor Board Member Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Good morning to you, doctor. Good morning. Uh, the administration and certainly Dr. Collins really issuing uh, some warnings there to take this seriously. Um, they still, even though Omicron was discovered nearly a month ago, don't seem to have a lot of answers to big questions. Um, does what you've seen so far indicate that this will cause a more severe illness? There's no indication that it causes a more severe illness. What we've seen in South Africa in particular is a decoupling between the cases and the hospitalizations. So hospitalizations are down about 30 percent relative to cases, and we're probably not measuring all the cases in South Africa. We're probably only picking up a small fraction. Uh, and more severe cases requiring ICU admissions are down 80 percent relative to past um, waves uh, in cases versus ICU admissions. So it does appear to be a less severe illness. Now, a lot of people believe, including myself, that the reason why it's manifesting as a less severe illness is probably because we have baseline immunity in the population. Probably around 80 percent of Americans and 90 percent of South Africans have some level of immunity, either from prior infection or through vaccination. So even though we're still getting infected because this is spreading through immune evasion, it's spreading by evading the immune immunity that we've acquired, we have some baseline immunity that protects us from getting very sick. And that's, in mm-hmm. fact, what you're probably seeing in terms of these hospitalization statistics. But it takes us to the unvaccinated or ineligible. Um, as we said, you sit on the board of Pfizer. We learned this week that when it comes to their vaccine for those under the age of five, that it's going to take more time. You had been predicting first quarter of 2022 for young children to be vaccinated. Can you level set for parents? How much longer do we have to wait? It depends on what the circumstances are. That, that base case is now getting pushed out to the second quarter of 2022. So what we've done, what Pfizer did was test a significantly lower dose in young children in the toddlers. It's a three microgram dose compared to a 10 microgram dose that's being used in children five to 12 and a 30 microgram dose in teenagers and adults. And the reason to go with a substantially lower dose is you're very focused on tolerability in young children. You don't want to have a, a vaccine related side effects like injection site reactions, pain, fevers. And so they test very low doses to try to achieve a very tolerable vaccine. Now, in six months to two years, that low dose 
produced a comparable effect in terms of the immune response when compared to 16 to 25-year-olds. And what you're measuring is antibody response. So the antibody response in the very young children was comparable to the antibody response we see in 16 to 25-year-olds, but in two to four, it was less. And so what the company is doing right now is going back and extending the trial and looking at three doses to see if three full doses, and we know this is going to be a three-dose vaccine regardless, whether three doses produces a comparable level of immune response compared to the 16 to 25-year-olds. We believe it will. I believe mm -hmm. it will. But I also think that if we start to see bad outcomes in kids, hopefully we don't. But if we see kids getting in trouble with Omicron, I do believe FDA will be in a position to make an earlier authorization on the basis of the data we have right now. Because even that lower antibody response in the two to four year olds is still providing some baseline immunity that should protect them from more severe outcomes from this disease. And that could be key because, as Dr. Collins said, he still doesn't have a good answer as to why there were, were those larger infections among small children in South Africa. Um, back here, <laughs> we've been talking for months now, doctor, about learning to live with COVID, but now we've got this Delta wave and the overlay of Omicron on top of it. Do we need to put the brakes on the return to normal? Well, look, I think people are really tired of living diminished lives from COVID generally. And you're seeing that in terms of what people are doing. They're reengaging activity that we know are going to be conducive to spread of this virus. Um, Omicron really has thrown a curveball here. I think that this is a temporary um, incident. I think Omicron is going to blow its way through the population probably very quickly when you look at what happened in South Africa and even what's happening in the UK right now where it's moving very fast. But we do face a hard four to six weeks ahead of us as this moves through the population. I think it is prudent, especially for people who are going to be around vulnerable individuals, to take added precautions heading into the holidays. Try to use testing. Make sure you're boosted. Um, take precautions within your settings and your social settings as well. Use high-quality masks when you go out. I don't, a lot of people don't want to be a link in a chain of transmission that could get to a vulnerable individual, either a young child or an older individual, even if they themselves know that they're at significantly less risk from a bad mm -hmm. outcome from this virus. So we should be prudent over the next four to six weeks. Being prudent means testing before you go into those family settings. You heard Dr. Collins say, stay tuned, we'll tell you which tests work. Do you have any indication which ones do? Well, FDA is testing the, um, the use, testing the tests, evaluating them against live virus this weekend, and so are the manufacturers. So they've gotten hold of plasma from patients who've been infected with Omicron and live virus, and they'll be doing those evaluations. I think we're going to know much more very early in this week. Um, every indication is that the mass market tests that people are using should be um, should hold up with this new virus. They should be able to detect it. So I think most of the tests that individuals are using are going to be just fine. It might be some of the smaller market tests that aren't in wide use that might be more suspect. But mm -hmm. things like the Binax now, which have been evaluated very carefully, should be fine. You said uh, weeks ago that the confusing language around the rollout of boosters was one of the most costly mistakes potentially of the pandemic. We just heard from Dr. Collins that when it comes to one of the few tools in terms of monoclonal antibodies that seems to work, that they need to ramp up supply, that America doesn't have the stockpile it needs right now. Why not? 
Well, look, I think we haven't looked ahead at the unknown unknowns, tried to predict what could happen and prepare for it. The Veer uh, biotech antibody we always knew was going to be preserved against a lot of different mutated forms of this virus. We should have crashed the production of that and stockpiled much more. The government only contracted for that about a month ago. We have 55,000 doses right now that are finally being forward deployed, and we'll have 300,000 in January. There's another drug. Uh, Lilly has a drug in, that's cleared two phase two studies that could be ready to be deployed as well. There's 300,000 doses sitting on pallets waiting to be forward deployed. It's pending regulatory review by the FDA. That's another one that we should be looking very hard at, trying to move that to the market more quickly. We have to get to a platform where we can update these monoclonal antibodies more quickly as new variants arise, similar to what we're doing with the vaccines. The vaccine division has moved very quickly to allow new iterations to come to market as the virus has evolved. We need to do the same thing with drugs and not treat each monoclonal antibody mm -hmm. against each iteration of this virus as if it's a brand new drug. Very quickly, should parents expect to send their kids back to in-person school after Christmas? I think in most places of the country, the answer is yes. In some hard-hit parts of the country where there's a high um, prevalence of Delta right now, high flu prevalence like the Northeast, the Great Lakes region, and now Omicron later on top of that, where healthcare systems could get pressed, I think that mm -hmm. you could see some districts make decisions to extend the breaks. Dr. Gottlieb, thank you very much. And we'll be right back with much more Face the Nation. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. We now turn to the growing opioid crisis, and we want to welcome to the program Anne Milgram, the head of the Drug Enforcement Administration. Good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Why is it so hard to cut off the flow of fentanyl, which is the drug that seems to be fueling these overdoses? Fentanyl is a different drug threat than we've seen before. It's synthetic, meaning that it's man-made. It's made of chemicals. Right now, those chemicals are largely sourced from China. They're going to the Mexican criminal drug cartels that are then mass-producing, often at an industrial scale, fentanyl. Fentanyl, tiny, tiny amounts can be deadly. Are people seeking it out as a drug or is it just something that they're surprised is mixed in to the drugs they're seeking? The cartels are mass producing these pills in Mexico mostly, and they're making them look like they're real oxycodone, like they're real hydrocodone, Percocet, Adderall, and then they're bringing them, flooding them into the United States and falsely advertise them, marketing them as though they were real pharmaceuticals. So you have a teen on Snapchat, an older American who's looking for a pain medicine that they might be able to get cheaper online, and they're finding these pills. The Americans believe that they're getting the actual pharmaceutical 
pill, they're not. What they're getting is fentanyl. And that is why we're seeing 100,000 overdose deaths this year. 64,000 of those are attributed to synthetic opioids like fentanyl. President Biden signed two executive orders to fight drug trafficking, and it allowed for a crackdown on fentanyl producers, particularly in China. What tools does this give you now? I mean, how do you get Beijing to hand over the bad guys? There are hundreds of thousands of unregulated chemical companies in China that are sending these drugs, these precursor chemicals that can be made into fentanyl. Those chemical companies are advertising. You can use this to make fentanyl. So we know what they're doing. China knows what they're doing. They need to do more. What the president's executive order does is it gives us new tools, particularly around illicit finance. One of the things that drives drug trafficking worldwide is money laundering, taking those profits and laundering them through different means. We see a lot of that illicit finance happening both in China and in Mexico. The other EO by the president set up a, um, an organization across government focused on transnational organized crime. That is narcotics trafficking. The social media companies, you have said, are very much a conduit, TikTok, Snapchat. Yes. How are people seeking out these drugs intentionally on these social media platforms? And what are you doing to get the companies to crack down? Drug traffickers are harnessing social media because it is accessible. They're able to access millions of Americans and it is anonymous. And they're able to sell these fake pills and to lie on those social media sites about that. So we know every single day across America that drugs are being sold on these social media sites, Snapchat, TikTok, Facebook. When you go on your smartphone, wherever you are, those traffickers are there too. And the minute you open up one of those social media apps, they're there and they're waiting. They wanna make it one click to get drugs into people's hands. We know what's happening and so do the social media companies. In our takedown, 76 of our cases are directly linked to social media websites where there is extensive narcotics trafficking happening. So you're building a case against the social media companies? We've built a case against, the, at this moment, the criminal drug networks. And we've drawn the line between the Mexican criminal cartels that are mass producing illicit fentanyl and making these fake pills and pouring it into the United States. What we're doing is investigating. We want to understand everything about how this is happening. And of course, the social media companies need to do more. So what would you tell parents who are listening at home, terrified at what you're describing? What can they actually do? Well, they need to sit and talk with their kids. The research is clear that when parents talk to children, drug use goes down in half. And we know that there are kids who don't understand these risks. We know that there are older Americans as well. This is a new threat. So the, people shouldn't be expected to know it. We need to help people understand one pill can kill. The only medicine that they should take is what's prescribed to them mm -hmm. personally and filled at a local pharmacy. And also the other piece of this is what we see dealers and, and drug trafficking networks doing now is that they're lacing other drugs with fentanyl. They're lacing cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin. Even there was a case recently in Connecticut with marijuana being laced with fentanyl. So no drugs are safe right now because fentanyl is being put into those drugs because it's highly addictive. But then they're killing their customers. They're killing their customers. Why isn't interdiction working? It is working in one sense, which is that we've taken off 20 million fake pills this year. We estimate at the DEA lab that four in 10 of those pills are potentially deadly. We've taken off 15,000 pounds of fentanyl this year. That is enough potentially lethal doses to kill every single American. We're focused on 
tracking those overdose deaths and working back to understand the full network from Mexico to Main Street that is causing harm and is killing Americans. It's not enough for us to do one drug trafficker here and there. Mm -hmm. We have to be targeted at the entire network so that we can take them down. What is the current Mexican government doing when you ask them to help you? We have to do more than we've ever done before. And so does Mexico and so does China. The administration has a new high-level security dialogue with Mexico. And my message to all of our partners is that the DEA is standing up to do more to protect American communities. But where do you fit in to the migration crisis right now? I mean, is, is stopping the flow of drugs a required step to stop the flow of people as well, if it's the cartels who are behind both? The cartels will do anything to get drugs in, in every way you can imagine. Yes, we see it coming through the border. We see it coming through ports, through airplanes, through freight services, through parcel delivery services. Fentanyl tiny quantities are deadly and extremely potent and addictive. So it's not in years past where someone would have to bring kilos upon kilos into the United mm -hmm. States. It is almost minuscule quantities right now. So the threat has changed enormously. And Milgram, thank you for your time thank you. today. We learned last week that more than 60,000 Afghans who had helped the U.S. were left behind following the chaos of the Biden administration's scramble to get Americans and those who support us out of Afghanistan. Under Taliban control, Afghanistan is facing a severe crisis. The U.N. predicts that more than one million children under the age of five could die of starvation this winter. We've spoken with U.S. officials about the Afghanistan withdrawal and the day the elected president, Ashraf Ghani, fled the country. But President Ghani has not spoken publicly, and we are now hearing for the first time from Hamdullah Mohib, Ghani's national security advisor, in an exclusive U.S. television interview. Although Mohib told us that we all share the blame for what happened, that's not what President Biden told the American people. We began by playing a clip of the president for Mohib when we spoke with him earlier. Afghanistan political leaders gave up and fled the country. The Afghan military collapsed, sometime without trying to fight. We gave them every tool they could need. We provided close air support. We gave them every chance to determine their own future. We could not provide them was the will to fight for that future. What do you make of that assessment? Did you lack the will? Absolutely not. The Afghan people made tremendous sacrifices for Afghanistan. I think uh, uh, it's, it would be dishonor to uh, take that away. Uh, what happened was the rug was pulled under the Afghans' uh, feet. Uh, the decision uh, to talk directly and engage the Taliban um, and make a deal with the Taliban that didn't include the Afghan government was protested myself in this city uh, about what was going to happen to our government, what was going to happen to us. That was a the U.S. agreement under the Trump administration with the Taliban exactly. that the Biden administration honored. And, and those decisions, that decision to talk directly to the Taliban without... Uh, uh, the, the presence of the Afghan government and, and then the full transparency with the Afghan government led to the collapse that happened on, uh, on, on August 15th. That was the day that the Taliban seized control. They were already in the city. By the end of the day, they had seized control. Did you have any idea when you woke up that morning that you would be fleeing the country? No. 
When did in you... fact, the, the, the night before, uh, my staff contacted me and asked if we, would, if we should start shredding and burning uh, sensitive documents. And we, I didn't believe that it'd be so, so soon. We still thought the Taliban had at least two more weeks until the U.S. presence uh, in Kabul. We had several cities and provinces around Kabul that were still under Afghan uh, government's control. But by that morning, by 4 a.m. that morning, we had lost m all of those provinces, plus a key district in Kabul. So you woke up that morning knowing that the Taliban is essentially knocking on the door of the capital. Correct. When did you decide to flee? Well, uh, about 2.30 p.m. The news that came in at that point made me understand that we no longer have, no longer have a, a consolidated force. There was no single uh, power to control it. Uh, most of them um, had abandoned their posts. Kabul was a city uh, that was not ready for that kind of fighting. It was a city and its security forces could do crimes, but they weren't uh, ready to fight uh, uh, against the Taliban in a battle in, in that. So uh, we, we saw the police and many other forces uh, abandoning their posts and, and not turning up to work that day. Uh, but what happened at 2.30 was that I got the news that two helicopters, one that was part of the president's fleet, was hijacked by a rogue ANDSF uh, element. And then another a was rogue shot. Soldier. Uh, yes, I understood that th this is the end. That even the airport is no longer secure for uh, for the Afghan president or anyone else around, and the fight is now going to be inside the city. And that was the only thing left that the president could do uh, to save um, lives and to ensure that uh, that there are still. Uh, 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 American troops left to be able to secure because they were in the right. negotiations. It wasn't the Afghans that were negotiating anymore. At 2.30, you walk up to President Ghani and you say what? I tell him it's time to leave, sir. Why? Because there was no other decision left for him to do. Right. What do you think would have happened if you'd stayed? Well, fighting would have ensued. We had two, we had two weeks. We could have continued fighting inside Kabul, uh, destroy most of the city. Uh, and Who would have been fighting, though? Because you're describing forces melting away. Forces, well, whatever forces were left. But you know you are harshly criticized, as is President Ghani, for choosing to flee that day. We had to make a decision that was right for Afghanistan. What did you take with you on that plane? You know there's been allegations of corruption and that money was taken. Look, those are allegations that are people know no person with the right mind would believe. Uh, the decision to leave was a very last-minute decision. You this didn't wasn't, take cash with you? Absolutely not, no. What did you take with you? We didn't. We just took ourselves. Most of the people that came on that flight didn't even have another a change of clothes. So um, uh, in, in, in Uzbekistan and in the Emirates, even for the president, we had to buy him a change of clothes. You took helicopters from the presidential palace to another country, Correct. to Uzbekistan. There are reports that you had to fly at low altitude because you were trying to avoid the Americans knowing that Absolutely. you were fleeing. Why? Trust was gone. There was no trust. What did you think the Americans were going to do? I had asked the Americans for something simple the day before. Uh, and it was a test to say, if this deal doesn't work out, a deal that would have a, a transfer of power to the Taliban, uh, and if this didn't work, would we be rescued? 
And the response was non-committal. You and asked I, the United States to help I you did. evacuate from if, Afghanistan. If this deal didn't work, would that be the case? There were intelligence reports both from Afghan sources, the Americans, and, uh, and independent that the plan for, uh, by, not by the Taliban, their sponsors, was they wanted Ashraf Ghani's head. And it's in, embarrassing enough to have lost our country. We're not going to lose another president and be embarrassed uh, uh, like that in Afghanistan and be killed. What we tried to do uh, was to see if there was anywhere that the president could go and resist and continue to be in Afghanistan. But that was no longer possible. There was no now, safe place in Afghanistan there was no for the safe president place. to be? Absolutely. Unless he wanted the war to continue, unless we wanted to see a civil war return. What was being discussed in Doha was nothing less than a surrender. And if it is a surrender, why take two more weeks and risk the lives of millions of Afghans and, and then in the end do exactly the same thing anyway? The argument is now that had you had a peaceful transfer of power instead of the Taliban taking it by force, that we wouldn't have children starving to death in Afghanistan right now because money would have still poured in to this new government, even though the Taliban was part of it. That international aid organizations would be able to provide food, oxygen in hospitals. What is stopping that from now, from happening now? United States and the world having sanctions on the Taliban. Well, why? The question is, if we were to give the Taliban exactly what they wanted, then, you know, the legitimacy given by the president by, for a surrender, you know, this is not an argument. This doesn't make sense to me well, in any way. Well, this is what the Biden administration would argue, and many Afghans, that there was a very narrow sort of window of opportunity where in those final weeks, President Ghani could have negotiated an exit that would have avoided the situation and the chaos that ensued. Was there a deal on the table? There was no deal on the table. This is an excuse. Look, This is what Secretary was, Blinken was, on this program said it was there, that he spoke to President Ghani on, on August the 14th. He thought he had a deal, and the next day, Ghani fled. I was on the phone with, uh, with President Ghani on a, on a Saturday night, uh, uh, pressing him to uh, make sure he was ready to agree with the, the, the plan we were trying to put into effect to do a transfer of power to, uh, to a new government that would have been uh, led by the Taliban, but been inclusive and included uh, all aspects of, of Afghan society. And he told me on the phone he was prepared to do that, but if the Taliban wouldn't go along, uh, he was ready to fight to the death, and the very next day he fled. That's what I he was, says. I was closely involved in that negotiation. I worked out the terms with the Americans on what would be uh, you know, that peaceful transfer of power. It was not going to happen on August 15. It was going to happen when we still had uh, multiple provinces under Afghan control and we still had a consolidated force. The Taliban that day were all over the city. And we didn't have, like I said, a consolidated force to keep the order. But that basically means a surrender to the Taliban. It's been reported you received a text message from one of the Taliban leaders that day on August 15th. What did he propose? Surrender. He said, you issue a, a statement of surrender and then we negotiate. I told him that's not how it works. You know, the Biden and Trump administration's envoy to the Taliban, Zalmay Khalilzad, the former ambassador who was on this program recently, said the U.S. should have pressed President Ghani harder to make concessions so that there was a peaceful transfer of power. 
He told my colleague, Michael Morrell, that Ghani insisted until the very end he would not leave until a successor was decided in an election. It was late, and Ghani was making demands as if he had won the war rather than he was losing the war. What he's describing is, is delusion. Mm-hmm. Did you ever say to him, Mr. President, the Taliban's coming to power, whether we like it or not, we have to take a negotiated deal? Yes, he wanted elections because he felt that that would be the way he hands over power. But he's not wrong to think that. He was being, he was being assured in every meeting, on every statement, that the international community wants to see a democratic Afghanistan, a sovereign Afghanistan, an Afghanistan that's at peace with itself and its neighbors. So we had these four things to look forward to. In the this United statement States was, says President Ghani just wanted to stay in power. Well, and that's it. Well, he didn't want to negotiate this his exit. Was never, this was never clear. There wasn't a, 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 a U.S. Secretary of State or a National Security Advisor, anyone higher that has come to Afghanistan, spent a day or two. This is a mission in which we have both shed blood together, made tremendous amount of sacrifices, and is worthy of protection to, to spend a day or two talk with the president and key leaders in Afghanistan to say, here is what the Americans want to do, right? You're right, we didn't read the writing on the wall. The writing on the wall was that a withdrawal will take place no matter what. We thought that the preservation of the last 20 years, the, the last two decades, mattered. And that is where we, 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 we misunderstood. President Ghani himself has been described as sort of living in a bubble reading books on the grounds of the palace while the country is disintegrating. I would never believe that just because President Ghani read books led to the collapse of the state. No, yeah. but the I don't, criticism I think that's, that, that's that a was, lame excuse, whoever presents it. But the criticism is that he was out of touch with reality, that he was living in a bubble, that there was uh, corruption and ineptness within the government. You're the national security advisor. You're the one who gives them the hard news we have to go. Did you ever give him the hard news, Mr. President, we have to agree to negotiate our exit here because the Americans are gone. They're leaving us. President Ghani received hard news every second of the day. Afghanistan was at war. Every minute we lost an Afghan across the country. There was no good news. Right now, um, there is, as we talked about, no money flowing in to Afghanistan because the Taliban are now running the government. Do you think if you had stayed that it would have made a difference? No. If the condition was that a Taliban government be in place, there would have been a Taliban government in place just two weeks later. So you don't feel a sense of responsibility when you hear about what the UN is saying, that this is going to be a bleak winter of starvation? Absolutely. Well, of course I feel responsible. I feel responsible now and I feel responsible then. I think what, what the outcome is, is unfair to the Afghan people. A decision was made to include and be able to, have, to see the Taliban in government, right? And, the United and States, then, the Biden administration... Agreed when, to what the Trump administration agreed to, which was the Taliban's coming back into power. When that decision was made, I think it was important to make uh, assumptions about how there will be collaboration with, with that government in place and how we're going to deliver aid to people that are in need. What do you think your biggest mistake was? We should have 
understood that the United States and uh, has made its decision and and would withdraw under any circumstances. Uh, and I think that probably uh, is one of the you know, one of the reasons we weren't able to uh, secure another outcome. You felt that you were going to have the United States change its mind based on conditions no. on the ground? No, I felt, I felt that our partners, the United States included, believed in a democratic Afghanistan, a place where we were going to preserve the gains of the last 20 years. I thought those gains meant something. You can watch the full interview on facethenation.com. We'll be back in a moment. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. And we want to wish those who celebrated a very Merry Christmas. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Director of the National Institutes of Health, Francis Collins, former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, Head of the Drug Enforcement Administration, Ann Milgram, and the National Security Advisor to the former President of Afghanistan, Hamdullah Mohib. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com. And you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation's also on our digital network, CBSN, at 12 p.m. and 4 p.m. Eastern Time every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. 
Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.